This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. The Maine Citizen Trade Policy Commission held a public hearing in Bangor on December 10th to gather comments about the highly controversial Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, commonly known as the TPP. If passed, the agreement would cover 12 countries with an estimated combined GDP totaling 40% of the world's economy. For several years, the TPP was negotiated in extreme secrecy. When the text was finally released last month, the advocacy group Public Citizen responded that, quote, in chapter after chapter, the final text is worse than expected. With the demands of the 500 official U.S. trade advisors representing corporate interests satisfied to the detriment of public interest. The text reveals that the pact replicates many of the most controversial terms of past pacts that promote job offshoring and push down U.S. wages, end quote. Congress is expected to vote on the agreement next year. The Maine Citizen Trade Policy Commission, the panel that held the public hearing, was created by Maine law in 2003 to assess and monitor the legal and economic impacts of trade agreements on state and local laws, working conditions, and the business environment, to provide a mechanism for citizens and legislators to voice their concerns and recommendations, and to make policy recommendations designed to protect Maine's jobs, business environment, and laws from any negative impacts of trade agreements. The CTPC is comprised of six legislators, seven members from the private sector, and five representatives of different state agencies. On December 10th, they gathered at Eastern Maine Community College, as did representatives from Senator Angus King's and Congressman Bruce Poliquin's offices, to hear from the public. A letter from Congresswoman Shelley Pingree was read to the commission in which she expressed what she called grave concerns about the TPP and the consequences its passage would have on Maine's economy. Pingree wrote, quote, I fear it will hamper our ability to enact protections in a number of different areas, including worker protection, public safety, and the environment, by allowing foreign companies to sue if those regulations hurt their profits, end quote. She said she's skeptical of claims that the TPP will benefit the U.S. economy, pointing to similar claims that were made about NAFTA in the 90s and devastating impacts that actually resulted from passage of that trade agreement, with thousands of Maine jobs being sent overseas. Pingree said she believes that the impacts of the TPP would actually be even more detrimental. She concluded, quote, While I believe international trade is an important area of opportunity for Maine businesses, I do not think the TPP is the right path forward, end quote. Last week on Maine Currents, we heard some of the testimony from members of the public. To recap, Koki Giles, a representative of state and national nursing organizations, testified that monopoly pricing protections for giant pharmaceutical companies in the TPP could be a death sentence for countless patients in need of affordable medications. Alex Jakamovich, a representative from the Maine Small Business Coalition, told the committee that the TPP threatens U.S. jobs and local regulatory sovereignty. Bonnie Preston, a Blue Hill resident who works with the Alliance for Democracy, urged a no vote on the TPP, citing concerns that the agreement places foreign corporations on an equal footing with the U.S. government. She and others pointed out that the tribunal that would decide the outcome of any disputes would be made up of corporate insiders. 
Betsy Gerald of Food for Maine's Future testified that the TPP would be, in her words, very bad for Maine's small farms, which would have to compete against the influx of cheap imports. Past trade agreements like NAFTA have forced many family farms out of business across the country, according to trade watchdogs. As an example of the powers that would be expanded even further by TPP, Gerald cited a recent World Trade Organization decision in favor of Canada and Mexico when those countries complained about the practice in the U.S. of labeling meat with the country of origin. The tribunal agreed that the practice put the U.S. at an unfair trade advantage and granted Canada and Mexico approval to impose up to $1 billion a year in punitive tariffs against the U.S. Christine Greenleaf told the Maine Citizen Trade Policy Commission about the series of manufacturing jobs she held in the past in Maine that were sent overseas. She now works with others who are in similar circumstances as mills shut down across the state. Penobscot Nation Indigenous Rights Attorney Sherry Mitchell warned that the TPP has been negotiated without the participation of the Indigenous people in the countries involved and ignores their rights. And Dennis Chinoy, who works with the Bangor-based social justice group PICA, Power and Community Alliances, warned the commission about the commodification and privatization of basic necessities like water under prior trade agreements. These powers would be expanded under the TPP. Chinoy says the TPP threatens Mainers well beyond the lost jobs that followed the passage of NAFTA and CAFTA. The TPP would open local communities and regulations to lawsuits by foreign governments with significant power and resources like Australia and Japan. No one at the public hearing spoke in favor of the TPP. In the first half of today's program, we'll hear a few more comments from the public at the December 10th public hearing, and then we're going to shift gears in the second half of today's show and hear some stories from a recent storytelling forum in Belfast. So stay with us. We're returning now to the Maine Citizen Trade Policy Commission public hearing on December 10th. My name is Stefano Tijerina, and I, uh, I'm the director for the Peace and Justice Center of Eastern Maine here in Bangor. I'm also a professor of history and political science at the University of Maine, and I also teach in the business school for Hassan University. So a lot of things have been said, uh, but I have a couple more things to add to the, uh, to the analysis about the, uh, the negatives of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, as a historian, I, I must uh, give it some sort of historical context. So. Um, this is a story that, uh, the story of globalization and of the expansion of markets beyond the nation state. Uh, this represents sort of like um, another gear in the expansion of globalization through this uh, free trade agreement. So we are going from a, from a market of a 12% of the global economy, which is represented by NAFTA, to a 40% global market outreach through this um, trade agreement, which means that there is, there is a linear um, precedent that shows that over time, since the 20th century, we have been moving away from the sovereignty of the nation state and toward a new sovereignty that is uh, regulated outside of the nation state, which is globalization, where the, the main actors of, uh, of the regulatory process and the main actors of the decision-making process are the 
the private sector interests and not small business, but big corporations and monstrous corporations, which are no longer even owned by uh, their, their own citizens. In other words, an American multinational is not owned by an American, American citizens, but is owned by a multiple uh, series of shareholders that have multiple nationalities that is part of globalization. So Ford is owned by Indian capital, Brazilian capital. Uh, today, uh, Burger King is owned by a Brazilian conglomerate. Tim Hortons is owned by this Brazilian conglomerate. Uh, so capital is owned by other people. So it's no longer even accountable to the nation state. It has no national identity. It has no national interest. It has the interest of the global shareholder base, particularly the majority shareholder base. And so these are things that we need to consider when we begin to think about the effectiveness of this free trade agreement. Um, I've been thinking a lot about its re regional geographical context, and it's called Pacific, which means that where, where does Maine land in, in this equation when Maine is not in the Pacific, Maine is in the Atlantic. Um, Maine has no real benefit out of this trade agreement. Uh, and this is important to analyze because, as it was mentioned previously and as it has been mentioned by some of you, uh, previously, before, when we were a nation state that was working for the construction of our own national goodwill and our own citizens, um, the, the paper mills, the shoe factories, the apparel industries that made up the New England economy and provided jobs and communities which developed around this, these industries, slowly began to die as the competition with, within ourselves began, began to tear us apart. So the first step for our companies to move out of New England and out of Maine was to go to the South because it was an unregulated system in the South, because there was cheap labor, because there was less, less labor regulations, because environmental standards were ignored, and those were uh, good opportunities for businesses to move operations overseas. And when they moved overseas, no, within our territory to a different geography. And, uh, and the consideration of abandoning communities did not really play a big role, because uh, at the end, the decision is about uh, profit revenues and about uh, shareholder interests and other uh, interests that are not relevant to our community base. This is what you explained happened in the 70s, in the 80s, so on and so forth. With NAFTA, the ability to take that same equation outside of the nation state became possible with free trade agreements. And so you could move operations no longer within our competitive realm, so move the operations from the south, from the north to east to the south, or from the south to the west, but now we could move them overseas, and that allowed corporations to have a little bit more flexibility. NAFTA allowed some sort of dynamic, however, we were lucky that under NAFTA, at least, we had some sort of dynamic with a, with a neighboring country that we have constructed some sort of uh, brotherly relationship with, which is the Canadian economy. But now, we're taking this to another level where there is no brotherly relationship with another economy. We're taking, to, we're taking it to a very different world where the, the 12 other partners of this, uh, of this um, gigantic 40% of the world market has no relevance, historical, cultural, or even political 
with with our with our uh, understandings of uh, democracy and social justice and and procedures of, of making decisions and so on and so forth we're going to a very different experiment and that's what I what I what I want you uh, to understand that this is something that has not even been uh, intellectually uh, recent what it is to open ourselves to a Japanese economy what it is to open ourselves to an Australian economy. We are no longer competing with Canada or Mexico, where at least we had leverage because we were powerful tenfold to a Mexican economy or even to a Canadian economy. Here we're going to compete against other actors that are going to be aggressively interested in capitalizing on our own internal market. And again, so, so where, are, where are our protective measures? We are actually giving away our protective measures to markets that are, have been waiting patiently for centuries to enter this economy and compete freely with our products. Products that are, have already been weakened because we have loosened our nationalist uh, policies and our uh, own regional policies uh, to protect our own small economies in this case, the state of Maine. So we're loosening ourselves even more. We're deregulating ourselves even more. Not because we want to, but it's because the global players that I mentioned before, the corporations, are interested that, that this takes place, that this is set up. The reason why it's negotiated behind closed doors is clearly that, because if it was negotiated in front of our faces in a democratic process, then there would be a lot of questions to ask. But if it's, uh, if it's negotiated behind closed doors and thrown to the public 95 days before it's negotiated and, and our president sends a, circulates a small op-ed saying that this is a race to the top without explaining why. No, I still don't understand why. I don't think anybody here understands why this is a race to the top. To me, this is a race to the bottom, uh, to a very deep bottom. Um, I. I have spoken to my, my neighbors, I have spoken to my community, and this is in the case of Maine, our home, this is a race to the bottom that has been taking place for most of the 20th century and into the 21st century. So we are, we are used to this race to the bottom. But where is it gonna stop? I don't know. Uh, is this going to create, is this, going to, is this trade agreement gonna motivate our, our young generations to stay in the state? I think they're going to move to the Pacific, where there's Pacific Coast, where there's going to be more jobs, more opportunities. If you think about it historically, all the wealth of, of the nation has moved from New England and, uh, and the Atlantic Coast, which is a decadent region of the United States, and has moved to the Pacific region. NAFTA created a lot of wealth for Texas. It did not create a lot of wealth for a collective nation state. So these trade agreements break the nation state. These trade agreements do not unite the nation states. Puts us into a fight between one another, puts us into a competitive fight as people seeking for work here and there, seeking for opportunities to survive in a more uncertain economy and in a more uncertain political world because uh, our democratic abilities to interfere or at least uh, affect the outcomes of policies becomes weaker when we authorize para-state authorities to design our economic future in the long run. And, and that's all I have to say. 
Um, my name is Jessie Dowling. I live in Whitefield, Maine. I'm a small farmer. I milk sheep and goats and I make cheese. I'm also the vice president of the Maine Cheese Guild, but I'm here just as myself um, because as a small farmer, I'm really concerned about these free trade agreements and how they're gonna affect small businesses and small farmers in Maine. Um, I think everyone did a really good job explaining why the TBP is a bad deal for Maine and a bad deal for us. Um, so I just want to cast in my my vote against the TPP and hope that you guys can do whatever in your power to to help us not let this pass. Um, in a time of global climate crisis, what does our future have to hold when all of our work and effort goes towards the profits of large corporations? Let's not let that happen. We can change that game right now. It's up to us. Some of the testimony from area residents on the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, or TPP, at a public hearing held by the Maine Citizen Trade Policy Commission in Bangor on December 10th. Last week, we devoted the entire hour to the topic. If you missed it, go to our archives at weru.org. You're listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture on WERU-FM. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Shifting gears now, we head to Belfast, where the Midcoast Actors Studio held their second True Stories storytelling event earlier this month, and we've selected three of the stories for you today. So this next storyteller that I'm going to introduce um, is somebody that just in looking at his bio alone, you can tell that he is just full of stories. Um, you may or may not know that he was recently seen on an episode of American Pickers, uh, but let's please welcome to the stage Doug Knight. I've been trying to live that down for two years. <laughs> I have. I would like to reveal to you the meaning of life tonight. So it's a possibility, I'm going to apologize to those following me, that there might not be any reason to go on with the evening. But I, I didn't know that it was one story. I have. I was really appreciate that Eric asked me to come up and tell us. I thought stories. And so I start setting down writing all my stories, and I got all these stories. How am I gonna, how am I gonna, you know, get them down to one manageable block of time? And so I'm gonna just start off with one that is, is not really funny, but it's when I get done with this story, you're gonna say that's not true. But you really will. You're gonna say he's a liar. But I'm not lying to you. It's absolute truth. If you were back around Waldo County, back in the late 70s, early 70s, middle, middle 70s to 80s, it was a quite a different place, if you remember, when chickens ran free in the streets. And we actually used to come into town, do our laundry, and get a chicken. And you'd go back and we could eat a chicken. And, but there was, a, there was a guy around here, and if you were in that area, if you don't know him, I'll tell you a little bit about him, and maybe from this story, I could I could stay up here and talk for hours just on his character and the colorful nature of his life. And he was my one of my best friends at the time, and he was known well by everybody, especially the law enforcement uh, personnel of the county and probably the state, maybe the United States. He was an outlaw. I was an outlaw. I've since reformed. So. And I can't tell you all the story, but one day, he was actually living with me, and and him and his son, and I have my son, and we were living in my house, and and then he would come in all hours at night. He'd be out stealing stuff and breaking in houses and doing whatever he did. 
And so one night I was in bed peacefully and he comes, Doug, Doug, get up, get up, get up, Doug, get up. I go, what? He goes, there's a new Chinese restaurant in Bangor. <laughs> I go, it's, it's open all night. I go, what? He goes, yeah, come on, we're going to go eat. I go, it's like, it's like 11 o'clock, you know, I'm in bed. He goes, come on, come on, I'll be, and it, part of the story is that Avell is his name. I don't know. Does anybody know Avell? Saint Avell, I always called him. But he was, he was Mexican, and he had, he had gotten a wreck. He got hurt on a boat, and a lawyer said, I'll take your case, and we'll win this boat. So the lawyer said, here, just live off my credit card. And so he gave this Avell, my buddy, his credit card, and me and probably all the guys in Brooks, probably like 12 of us, we lived off that credit card. <laughs> Seriously, for two, if you can imagine going into a store and buying like, you know, back then like $140 for the beer, they would pay for it with his credit card, you know. <laughs> and, and this guy said, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, we're gonna win this case. So anyway, so he came and took me, make the long story short. So we went to Bangor and we went into the, got to the drive and it's up there by Paul Bunyan. I don't know, if I can't exactly remember exactly where it was. But we went to the restaurant, and it was kind of like a Dunkin' Donuts type situation. The guy said, I'm sorry, I can't serve you. I'm closing down. I said, well, you're supposed to be 24 hours. He goes, well, this, this is actually the last day. I'm, I'm closing the restaurant down. I'm not, this is it, it's over. I go, we just drove 40 miles to come to this restaurant. He goes, can't you serve us one last meal? He goes, all right, I'll cook you one meal. And so we sat down, and we looked at the menu, and we ordered our meal, and we ate our meal. And then we got done with the meal. He's up there cleaning pots and pans. And we said, do we get a fortune cookie? <laughs> and he said, I think I got some. And he, he went under the counter, and he pulled a little white Tupperware, like I think probably butter or pickles or something came in, or, or probably uh, bamboo shoots or something, a little plastic thing, and he pulled it out. And there was five fortune cookies in this bucket. There's two of us. So we each took a fortune cookie, went back to the table, sat down, and Vell opened his fortune cookie and read it. And I don't remember, it was inconsequential. I opened my fortune cookie. To my surprise, my fortune cookie was empty. So I went back, I said, my fortune cookie doesn't have a fortune in it. And he said, well, here, there's a couple more. Take another one. So I took another fortune cookie, went back to my seat. I opened it. This is in the old days when you used to be able to open those things up without a, a machete. But anyway, <laughs> I, I opened it up, and, and there, and, that, and I opened the fort. It was empty. This is the last day of the 24-hour Chinese restaurant. The last meal being served. I went back. There was one more fortune cookie left in the bucket. The last fortune cookie in the last restaurant. And I took the fortune cookie and I opened it up. There was a fortune in it, fortunately. And the fort, <laughs> actually, if you invite me out to eat sometime for Chinese restaurant, I will tell you what the fortune cookie, no, I'm not gonna do yeah. Actually, the fortune cookie said, man does not live by fortune. That is, that's a true story. You know, when I was thinking about, I got a bunch of stories, I, I can't see the clock, so I can't even see when Eric holds the 12-minute sign up, so you guys are, you gotta think I'm not here. But uh, I've been, I, I really appreciate all you people coming out here tonight, because 
I'm really wondering what the Facebook community is doing with all these people not on their Facebook pages, but somehow it, it will survive, I'm sure. But, you know, one thing about Facebook is that I, I, I found something out. I, does Apple computers have spell check? Is it built in? I have some friends who are on Apples and they make all kinds of horrendous mistakes. I go, I, these people are, I thought they were smart, you know, but they make all these grammatical errors. And like, I look a lot smarter because I, I got Windows 10 and this thing makes, I mean, it corrects everything, <laughs> corrects all my mistakes. But you know, when you're up here on stage and you're telling stories and you're in front of people, there's no spell check. And so I have been guilty. I like to, I consider myself a wordsmith. I'm a songwriter and I write songs. And, and, I, and ever since I was a young guy, I like to use bigger words than I really need to. It's called being smug and a pedantic. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> but so I was in, a, in an intelligent conversation, as I always engage in. And I was, and I, I made a terrible malapropism. You know what a malapropism is? Anybody know what that is? Malapropism is when you use the wrong word. It sounds like the right word, but it's really not the right word. And, it, and it's really ridiculous. And so I was having this conversation, and I meant to say, I wanted to say, well, if you go off on a tangent, you know, you know what a tangent, you go off on another subject. I said, you would call that a tangent tangential argument, a tangential train of thought. So I said, well, I want to go off on a tangential train of <laughs> tangential discussion here. And my friend, thank God he was my friend, and it was not mixed company, but he did point out that there's a vast difference between tangential and transgenital. <laughs> but I want to tell you, I don't know how much time I have left, That's, but I, I had all these stories. I have like I got like thirty stories. I gotta hurry up. And I and I, and I came up with this idea that I would name two stories, and then let you guys pick which one you wanted to hear. And then if you want to hear the other one, you had to invite me out to eat. <laughs> I thought that was really good, but it's not gonna work because I can't even see you guys. So I'm gonna I'm gonna just shoot this next one. This that that was the meaning of life, by the way. The man does not live by fortune. But this, this next story elaborates on that meaning of life because how many people here have or have had and live with any period of time with an outhouse? Okay, some of them were my former neighbors. Okay. Well, I have an out, I've had an outhouse for 41 years and I can't imagine that you other people actually... Ugh, Use go inside of your house and do those those things. I mean, when I start thinking about, I start talking, thinking in my mind what stories I would tell, and most of them had to do with bodily functions. My, the really interesting stories usually are, or or mice, or bats. So the, the monkey, the monkey story, kind of. I'm really, I'm really tempted to tell my bat story, but oh man, if you could hear it, you, if you invite me out for dinner, I promise I will tell you my bat story and my rat stories. But I want to tell you my outhouse story right now. When I first moved to Maine, I, I bought a little camp. It wasn't electricity or water, 
and I moved in kind of it was the wrong time of year, and I, I didn't have an outhouse, so I built this little building, and I had a window that was part of my house, and you open the window up and you go into the outhouse. So I thought I was really being intelligent, you know. I was reading all Mother Earth news, and I thought I was smart, you know. So I, so you, to go to the bathroom, you remember the old Beatles song, "Came in through the bathroom window." Well, isn't that what it was? Something like that. Anyways, to go to the outhouse, you had to go through the bathroom, go through the window into the outhouse. And I had this outhouse, which is up about that high. I had a, I had a 50 gallon drum under there, which would just fill up. And then that drum filled up. You know what? A 50-gallon drum full of that is really an, a problem to have. That's why traditionally people just, people just go in the ground. So I had this 50-gallon drum, so what am I going to do with this? So, okay, well, I took, I took out my gun, and I shot a bunch of holes in it. I, fig I figured it's gonna, it'll at least get rid of the liquid and give it a couple weeks, and it's going to dry. This, the thing still weighed about... I don't know, what's a 50-gallon drum weigh? It must weigh like 350 pounds, and, you, and it's muddy, and I cannot move this thing. But you know what? That's not even what this story's about. Because I learned a valuable lesson from that. You know what the lesson is? Get a bigger drum. So, my next outhouse, I did, I, I tried a traditional hole in the ground, and then I did that for three or four or five years, and then I had this idea, I, I got one of those, a gasoline tank that you use like the, maybe a farmer, it's 600 gallons, it, it's about, it's, you know, like that big around, and I buried that in the ground, okay? I hired a guy with a backhoe, come bury my tank, and I, and I was going to build my outhouse right on top of it, so I, now, I forget what it cost, but Junior Emerson came out and buried my tank, and I went in the house. Next day, I was going to build my outhouse on top of the tank because I had a hole cut in it. The tank was this way. And I went out and the groundwater at my place tipped the tank. So my tank was no longer underground. <laughs> so I had to hire him to come back. And he came back and I dug the tank up again and I hired another guy to weld. I welded bumpers and old bicycles. I welded all the stuff on the side of this tank. And I buried it again and we stuck it down there and it stayed there. And it's still there. It's, all, it's, it's up about that far now. So anyways, this takes a considerable amount of time to fill up. About 10 years later, it filled up. Now I have 600 gallons, as, as opposed to 55 gallons of, you guessed it. Okay, so I have this full, and so I called the septic, septic guy. I'll just have him suck it out, you know, that's no problem. And so there's a really a kind and gentle septic man who lives in Albion. I highly recommend him. Triple A, can't forget it. Triple A septic, or maybe it's double A. I don't know. But he's in Albion. And he came out. And I said, I don't know if you're going to be able to empty this out or not. And he goes, oh, we'll get it emptied. And so he took his hose. They have like a, a truck that has vacuum. I don't know if anybody's ever had their septic system cleaned out, but it's vacuum. It's, it's this big tank which creates this gigantic sucking action, and I don't know how many pounds, I don't know how to measure uh, vacuum, but he had this hose, and he put the hose, and he goes, I'll put some water in there, and he shot a bunch of water down in there, and get it kind of stirred up a little bit, and he stuck the hose on, and he was, he was doing a pretty good job, you know, sucking, the, you, know, and, you know, and it was doing this, and all of a sudden, 
and the, and the tank starts going, and you just hear the whole truck is like shuddering out there. It's, it's like, it's not, it's like, it's creating this vacuum. It's gonna like, is this gonna explode? He goes, I go, what's going on? And he pulls the, pulls the hose up, and I had a, I had a, like a paper Bible in my outhouse. It's one of those thick ones, like you get at Rennie's for 99 cents. You should get one. They're great reading. 99 cents to keep you. Anyways, this Bible fell down on my outhouse, you know, a couple years, and it had been soaked and it's absorbing. And this got in the, it's got like a four-inch hose there, and this Bible is up in the hose, stuck in there. And so he goes, well, that's no problem. Let's go back and reverse, I'll just go reverse the vacuum. So he went back out to the truck, switched this thing, and, and it wouldn't come out. You know, he's beating on the hose, beating on the hose, shaking the hose. He goes, I'll try to suck it again. And he goes back in. And he did that a bunch of times. Ah, it's not coming out. This Bible is stuck in this hose. So he went back and, and he went to the back of the truck and I was standing right next to him there and he had this big brass four-inch fitting with big handles on it. And he went up and he goes, well, I'm going to have to pull the hose off and we gotta, he's got to clean that out of there, you know. And so he went up to the truck and he... He took he took his hand. He you know took a, I think he had a hand. He went like this, it's like spin off, and this thing spun off like that. And as soon as it spun off, this incredible amount of like went all over the front of him, you know. And it, it really it, it it really stinks. I don't know if you ever been in. This reminds me of a story. You kind of think of it. I, I could. If I have time, I'll tell you. Invite me out to dinner. We won't. I'll tell you the other story that this reminds me. I'm getting. I'm getting. I'm going to wrap this up here. But anyways, and this. So he's covered, drenched in this stuff all over him here. And I looked at him and I said, he was just this like another day for him at work, you know. And I said, I just, can I ask you a question? He goes, Yeah, go ahead. I go, I go You don't by any chance bite your fingernails, do you? <laughs> I'm serious. I asked him that question. And he looked at me and he goes, everybody does. <laughs> so, to sum up, the meaning, of life, the meaning of life is, life, man does not live by fortune, and everybody bites their fingernails. This is Maine Currents on WERU. You're listening to a few selected stories from a recent storytelling event called True Stories, held by the Mid-Coast Actors Studio in Belfast. Our next storyteller is somebody that I've had the fortunate opportunity to see perform in the most recent New Vaudeville Review, and I'm already looking forward to see what she has in place for the next one. If you'd please welcome to the stage, Sigrid Coffin. Um, I'm Sigrid, and uh, for most of my adult life, I've tried to combine two loves of mine. One is traveling, and the other is rock climbing. So this has taken me to some really excellent places in the world, and I've had the opportunity to climb beautiful, beautiful routes in lots of, lots of countries and continents with amazing people and in amazing cultures. So a couple years ago, this took me to uh, Southeast Asia, 
and to a little area on the west coast of Thailand called Tonsai Bay. And I'd heard about these massive limestone cliffs um, that towered over these turquoise seas. Um, it was all climbers there, and I thought, wow, yeah, they're climbing seasons in January. I could totally do that. And so um, I uh, was really, really didn't know what to expect. The climbing there is completely different than the climbing here in New England, which is mostly <laughs> glacially eroded vertical cliffs. Um, and there it's all um, undercut limestone cliffs that have been eroded by the ocean. And so um, I thought, oh, I'll give this a shot. So I got on a plane and another plane and a bus and another bus and then a shuttle. And I wound up on this beach on the western coast of Thailand. And I had to take a boat to this place because although it's not a, an island per se, it's a peninsula, it's impossible to get there by car. There's just no roads because it's just these massive cliffs. And so you get on a boat and they take you down the coast in these little fishing boats. And the cliffs are getting bigger and bigger and the water is sparkling and it's super warm. And this was two winters ago, if you remember what that was like here. And, um, and so I'm going down, and the cliffs are getting higher. And I come around the bend into Tonsai Bay, and the cliffs are just massive. And they're bright orange, and they've got these streaks of black and white and all these mineral deposits. And they're just incredible with these stalactites hanging down. And you can see climbers up in the, on the cliffs, and they're calling back and forth to one another. And this beautiful, beautiful cliff is really prominent right in the middle of the beach. And it's got this huge line running up the center of it. And I'm looking at this line, and it's about 300 feet tall, and it kind of curves at the top in this big wave. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's a climb here. Like, I could see it from the boat. And I'm like, that's something I got to do. So I come in, I get off, and I go up the beach, and I go into the jungle, and I find a little hut to stay in. And I go back down to meet my friend Shane, who I'd met. He was an Irish climber. I'd met him a couple years before in the Alps. And so he had been there for a couple months, so he kind of took me around and showed me what was what, and uh, I asked him about that line that I'd seen coming in, and he said, oh yeah, that's humanality. It's this amazing climb called humanality. It's about 300 feet tall, and yeah, we're gonna do that climb. And I said, oh, okay, great, you know, that's awesome. Um, I'm gonna give myself a couple days to get used to the heat and the jet lag and, um, you know, the style of climbing. And he said, well, you're gonna have to take a few more than a couple days, because in a couple days, you're gonna be so sick, you're not gonna be able to get out of bed. And I thought, well, you know, we'll see about that. I have a pretty strong disposition. But um, yeah, no, I, I didn't have that strong a disposition. I never saw anybody who didn't succumb to this particular sickness. So I was lying in my hut really, really ill. And all I could hear outside this bamboo walls, which are paper thin, was the sounds of the jungle. And they're really different than anything else I'd heard. And most of what I was hearing was monkeys. And they're all over the place there. And I could hear them out on my porch. And I'd seen them around in the few days that I was still upright. Um, and they were there were two kinds of monkeys there. And we called them type 1 and type 2 monkeys. We didn't get too scientific about it. But type 1 monkeys were like a foot high. And they were really cute and um, furry. And they had these long little lemur tails and these little black and white like panda faces. And they lived in the trees. And they were really shy and very cute. And then the type 2 monkeys were like these three foot tall monsters that terrorized tourists and climbers and lived up in the cliffs. And there was actually a wall there called Monkey Wall. Uh, and the guidebook says, like, get off this wall by 5 PM or the monkeys come home. And I'd heard stories of climbers getting chased off the cliff by these really aggressive monkeys, totally fearless. And at this point, they were so used to humans, they just really didn't, did not have any fear at all. So I'm listening to the sounds of the monkeys. And I'm kind of you know thinking how weak I am. And Shane comes in to check up on me, and um, he says, yeah, you know, you're fine. They don't usually come in, although a couple nights ago I did wake up with a type 2 monkey sitting at the base of my bed. And I was like, 
what did you do? And he said, well, you know, I just let him do whatever he wanted. And you just, you don't want to yell at them because they get really upset and they attack. And I was like, okay. And he was like, you want to try to throw something at them, like a shoe. And I can barely lift like the plastic bucket next to my bed. And I'm trying to think like, oh my God, I could never fight off a monkey right now. But I recovered and I did not get a monkey come into my shack, so that was good. I wound up recovering and having an amazing time, and the climbing there really is spectacular. It's these three-dimensional sort of tufas and stalactites and just like nothing else, and it took a while to get used to. So at the tail end of the trip, you know, I still hadn't done that climb, and so Shane says, no, we'll do it tomorrow. We'll do it tomorrow, 8 a.m. We gotta do it before the sun hits it, because it's far too hot to climb in the sun there, and I'm like, okay. So we go down there, 8 a.m., and there's two parties ahead of us. We couldn't really guarantee that we'd get off the climb by the time the sun hit it, so we're like, we'll come back tomorrow. We'll do it at 7 a.m., 7 a.m. So we get there at 7 a.m. the next day, and there's one party ahead of us, and they're like dropping gear and like flaking ropes, and I was like, I don't want to be under these people. So we're like, 6 a.m., we'll come back at 6 a.m. So the next morning, it's like the last week there. We come back, there's no one there, the jungle's deserted. We go across the beach, the climb's deserted. It's so beautiful. So we start climbing up, and it's maybe two or three maybe sections that are like scrambling and then there's these really sketchy bamboo ladders and then there's a small section that you want to have a rope on for so we roped up for that and then you get to this long wide ledge um, about 60 feet up and that's really where the climb starts <laughs> so we get up onto this ledge and we're sort of bolted into the rock because we're already at at a certain amount of elevation and I look over and there's like one of these type 2 monkeys like sitting on the edge of the cliff and he's looking at me and I'm kind of like I don't know he's there and um, and it's I, I'm sort of wondering I'm like man I haven't seen a monkey on these cliffs and I'm like wow I wonder if it's still monkey hour like they're probably still roosting you know they haven't like moved on yet we're here early and so I was like well whatever he doesn't really seem to care that I'm here so Shane ropes up it was his first lead and so I put him on belay and I'm tethered in and you know, okay, you're on belay. So he starts climbing up this really cool pillar and about 10 or 15 feet up I kind of see out of the corner of my eye like this monkey like starting to like just kind of saunter over towards me and he kind of is like out of my periphery which I'm sure was planned and I'm like kind of like you know trying to belay safely but also keep an eye on this monkey which is making his way towards me um, and then the climb sort of about 20 feet up Shane had to kind of go over this lip and he's completely out of sight so Shane kind of goes over there and I'm still just you know tooling around looking at the monkey and, and then another monkey comes up the ledge and behind that monkey were like three baby monkeys and then about a minute later like another monkey drops down and then another one comes up and all of a sudden within two minutes I am just swarmed by type 2 monkeys and this ledge is 25 feet long maybe and about 8 feet wide and there's probably 30 monkeys on this ledge and they are all around me and they're not doing too much they're super curious but then right in front of me and it's between me and the rock a fight breaks out and uh, it really instigates a lot of monkey energy. And so two males are like fighting over a female monkey, which I know because one of them won and proved it right there. And that kind of, um, you know, a couple other monkeys got into that swing of things and started um, monkeying. And uh, that went on for a little while. And then the frenzy kind of picked up. And so then the alpha monkey, the big guy kind of is at this point out of my sight and I feel the rope starting to get pulled off my tether and I look down and he's like reaching up with his superhuman like hands and he's pulling on my rope 
and it's attached to my my climber and so I'm like pulling it back but I'm also like trying to belay and like not make eye contact and I don't want to yell because I've been told not to and so he looks up at me and I'm pulling the rope back from him and he like peels his gums back from his teeth and just growls at me and I'm just like go away like in this super non-threatening squeak and he just growls at me again and so I reach down and I pick up this tiny pebble which is all I could get my hands on and I kind of like chuck it at him and he just growls at me and reaches down and picks up a rock and I'm just totally terrified at this point just caution to the wind and I just yell shade hurry up and a second later I hear you're on belay and I just shot out of there I've never climbed so fast and I just booted up this pillar and got to the anchor and I was shaking so badly it took me about 10 minutes to calm down and I couldn't even really tell Shane what had happened I just might be like oh my gosh you know so we get up to the top and uh, you know it's a beautiful climb we finished the climb it was totally great and we're rappelling down and we're rappelling down over the ocean and I'm just thinking like how many years over a decade of climbing now and I've been you know gear inspections and route finding and guidebook reading and plane tickets and weather reporting and partner choosing and knot tying and anchor building and all these things that go into making this sport you know as controlled and safe as I possibly can and yet the most terrified I've ever been on a climb was on that ledge that day so there's a very thinly veiled analogy here which is basically in this precipice of life as we navigate these cliffs you can climb and you can prepare and you can try to control as much as you can but at the end of the day, you always wind up on a ledge, tethered tight, with a bunch of monkeys. <laughs> Thanks. All right, one last story to bring this evening to a close from a Belfast local. She's an avid writer and a teacher. Please welcome Ariel Greenberg. I don't know how avid I am. I'm semi-avid. Um, <laughs> hi. Uh, so this is a small community, and so some of you may know me or may have seen me and my family around. Um, you probably in the co-op because we're there like five times a day. Um, I have two kids, and I have two men with me um, most of the time. One of them is my husband, and the other one is my boyfriend. My children will tell you uh, I have two husbands or I have two boyfriends, but I really have one husband and one boyfriend, and we all live together here in Belfast. And I'm going to tell you the story of how that came to happen. Um, there are a lot of adjacent stories, and so you can take me out for many dinners. I'll just use that, that everybody <laughs> said. But I'm going to tell you the story of how that came to happen. It actually started with babies. Um, my own baby, my, my youngest child, was uh, just ending his period of being a baby. He was about two and a half, and he was uh, finally weaning. Um, he nursed for a long time, and, uh, and I was really... Um, excited to be exiting this baby phase of my life. I'd spent my entire 30s basically having babies. Um, and now that phase was coming to an end. So it was kind of an incredible time. And just at that time, my sister had a baby. And her husband had to leave and go back to work. And she needed help. So I went to fly out to Chicago to help her. And um, one of the ways she wanted me to help her was that she... Uh, 
her, she and her husband had been co-sleeping with the baby in the bed with them, um, and that worked great as long as her husband was there, but she's a very restless sleeper, and she was really worried she was going to, like, hit the baby in the face in the night or something like that, you know, roll over onto the baby. So she, and she also was exhausted and wanted to get a good night's sleep. So she asked if I would please sleep with her baby. Um, and I said, of course, you know, it would be my great honor and privilege to sleep with my niece. Um, so I slept with the baby, and uh, I don't know if you, any of you have read the studies about this, but there are some crazy biological, real science things that happen when um, fertile women are around babies, uh, newborn babies. You know, it's pheromones, it's all sorts of stuff that I don't understand, but it's real. And so when I slept with this other, you know, my sister's newborn baby, my whole system went wacko. Um, my cycle completely changed and like everything kind of went, um, just went cuckoo. And all of a sudden I was this person with, uh, with my libido and my sexuality back after it had been mostly, you know, subdued for these decade long period of having babies. Um, and I really didn't know what to do with that. It was sort of amazing and uh, curious to me and exciting. Um, and also sort of terrifying and um, familiar and unfamiliar at once, I guess I would say. And so I was trying to find out information, like what do, I'm a researcher, that's what I do, you know, professionally, I, I, I look things up. So I decided I would research, you know, what, what is this thing that happens when women are done having babies, but sort of get their sexuality back and, you know, want an outlet for that, you know, in the world. Um, and so I actually ended up listening to this podcast by a woman who uh, had a very similar story to mine in these ways. You know, she'd had a baby, and she, she was doing podcasts exactly about this topic. And it just so happened that she also, uh, she lived with two men, her husband and the father of her child. Um, and they all lived together. And actually, her husband, who was not the biological father of the child, was the stay-at-home father for this child that she'd had with her other partner. And they called this polyamory. That was probably the first time I'd heard that term, um, but it sounded kind of good to me. It sounded kind of interesting. Um, and I decided I would approach my husband and talk to him about it. And um, you can imagine, obviously, uh, that in many situations that would be like horrible, like a bad, very, very, very bad idea, right? But in fact, um, there are reasons why for me and Rob that was not such a terrible idea. Uh, in fact, when we'd started dating, we had said to one another that uh, the idea of long-term monogamy seemed sort of impossible to both of us, or just at least a very hard road to hoe, and that um, while sleeping with somebody else could be a symptom of other problems in a relationship, that the sleeping with the, pers the other person on its own was not necessarily um, a problem, that that seemed actually kind of natural, even though Rob and I had only ever been in monogamous relationships ourselves. Um, so we, we'd sort of said that, you know, like that's not going to be a deal breaker for us. And when it came time for us to get married, we wrote our own vows and we specifically, you know, purposefully decided not to put anything around monogamy in our vows. We left all of that out. In fact, we wrote these sort of Buddhist inflected vows, which were all about honoring change and um, honoring uh, space for one another to change and evolve over time and support one another through that. So it wasn't like the craziest thing in the world to say to my husband, like, maybe we should explore non-monogamy. Um, 
And because, like me, he's also a researcher, we were both kind of like, that sounds kind of cool and interesting. Let's let's look into it. So we we did. You know, maybe non-monogamy sounds like a kind of wild and crazy choice, but we went about it the way we go about everything, which is that we researched it to death. We read like all the books, and we listened to the podcasts, and we went on the websites, and um, we spent a long time just in sort of research mode. And then after a certain point, we said to each other, like, okay, now what? Now what do we do? And we said, well, why don't we just go into the world with the mindset that we're non-monogamous? It'll just be happening in our heads. And uh, so we tried that. And that was pretty fascinating as a sort of um, psychological experiment. Because what happened when we both went into the world with the mindset of non-monogamy in our heads is that we felt visible in this very new way to the rest of the world. Um, so like instantly, you know, we would we would say, you know, he would leave for a work trip and I would say, you know, he would leave, he would have his suitcase in his hand and I'd be like, bye honey, like you're non-monogamous. And we both kind of laugh, like ha ha ha. I was like, you could, you could pick somebody up in the hotel bar and sleep with them and it would be okay. And we were like, ha ha, that's so funny. Um, <laughs> and so, but that's what we did. So he would, so he would, he would not actually sleep with anybody, but he would go into the world with that in his mind and he would come home and I was like, how did it feel just to have it in your mind? And he, he was like, it was kind of amazing. Like I just felt really alive and, you know, kind of like noticeable. And, um, and I had the same experience. I would go into the world with this in my head and just sort of feel seen in this new way that was very fulfilling. Um, so we did that for a while and then we sort of said to each other, okay, now what? <laughs> you know, like now, now what do we do? At some point we're going to have to actually just make this leap, right? Like we're going to have to just do this thing. And um, we both started pursuing other relationships. And again, you know, we're doing ethical non-monogamy. So we're completely upfront um, with the other people and with one another about everything that's going on. And I will say that one of the most um, fun parts of this really early on was Rob and I getting together after the kids were asleep and having a cup of tea and saying, like, who did you talk to online today? Or, you know, what's happening on your OkCupid profile? Um, and just having the conversation about it with one another. And that was a really uh, beautiful experience for us to just connect and um, get to sort of see each other through this other um, perspective. And um, but so we've both been, you know, starting to pursue other relationships. And at a certain point, we were like, OK, I guess we have to maybe actually do this thing, this real thing. Um, and it just so happened that I, you know, we both sort of set up dates and mine came first um, chronologically. And so I was going to go on this date. And um, I remember, I will never forget, standing in our bedroom and uh, packing up my stuff to go. And I was really excited and really looking forward to it and also just completely terrified. And um, I looked at Rob and I said, like, what if this ruins everything? You know, what if there's really no going back? And I love our life, and I love our marriage, and I love you, and maybe this is an enormous mistake. And we had done all this research and all this talking about it, and we did nothing but talk about it um, for months and months. But, you know, it was still wasn't the same as actually having done this thing. And uh, 
And he just looked at me and he was like, I know, I feel the same way. I, you know, I think this is the right choice. I think we're, we're going about this the right way. I think this is really um, going to work for us, but we, we can't know. We just, we can't know. Um, and we both just started crying. Like, what if we're really messing this up? Um, but we were like, well, we, we don't know. We just won't know. So I ended up going on my date and, you know, went off to Portland to have a nice weekend. And um, I called Rob sort of halfway through. I think it was, maybe it was even the first night I was there. And I was, you know, I'd been having a great time and everything, but I was worried about him and how he would be responding. And I called home and I said, you know, how are the kids and what's going on? And, and then I was like, well, how are you, you know? And he said, um, you know, I'm totally fine. I'm fine, and I'm really glad you're having this weekend, and I want you to just enjoy it and be present to it, and don't worry about me. Like, we're okay, and we'll talk about it when you get home. Just be there now, which is, of course, an incredible thing to say, and which is, you know, why I married this guy, because he's amazing. Um, and so I did. I, I was like, okay, I, I really have permission to do this, and... Um, and I'm just gonna be here on the state. Uh, and I did that, and I went home, and uh, Rob you know, met me at the door, and we looked at each other, and I won't tell you that it was the same, really, like everything was the same, because of course everything is not the same, no relationship actually is ever the same, all, all relationships constantly evolve. Um, but we were the same people, actually. And we loved each other for the same reasons that we'd always loved each other. And um, we related to one another in the same way as we'd always related to one another. And we sort of were like, oh, yeah, we can do this. It's actually fine. Um, and, and that was three years ago, something like that. So I'll just say that it's continued to go well um, and actually be kind of remarkably smooth. Um, and I love telling the story. I've gotten to tell the story in a number of different formats, including on a sort of like big name national podcast. And so I have a lot of people who come and approach me and want to talk about non-monogamy and talk about these choices and um, have a lot of questions about it. And I love telling the story because for that reason, because um, there are not that many stories out there about alternative family structures and they can be very helpful to people and I'm glad to be of service in that way. And I love telling the story because it's a story that ends well with a lot of joy and um, in a really good place. And, you know, it's a story that has certainly, you know, been life altering for me. Um, but there's also a really tough thing to me about telling the story, which is that I always feel, so usually what happens is I tell the story and the person says like, well, that sounds amazing for you, but you know, I could never do that. And I always feel like the story, part of the story is about, it's kind of like I've walked, I'm walking into a room and I'm trying to take you with me, but there's a threshold there and I can't really get you to, completely cross over that threshold with me. Like, I will end up in this room and the person who feels like they can't, they could never do this themselves are always gonna be on this other, you know, on, on the other side of the door. Um, and I don't, I never know exactly what to say to that. You know, I feel like this, this idea of, uh, that that would never work for me is, is something that we thought perhaps was true for ourselves and we just didn't know until we got there and didn't know if we were gonna be able to do it.
and then we did. Thank you. some of our friends and neighbors, members of the local community, telling stories in Belfast on December 5th at the Midcoast Actors Studios True Story event. Join us next week and we'll have more local storytelling for you, this time from Bangor's Queen City Cellar Tellers, where the theme for December was family. And be sure to join us here every Wednesday at 4 for Main Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. You can send comments and suggestions for this or for any of our locally produced news and public affairs programs to news at weru.org. I'm Amy Brown. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for Democracy Now! Up next, then Jazz Straight Ahead here on Community Radio WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. Wishing you all happy holidays.